From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is a special episode of The Next Big Idea. It's part four of a miniseries we're calling Rethinking Big Ideas, because if the crisis we're living through right now is good for anything, it's for forcing us to take another look at what we thought we already knew. I've been struggling with two questions lately. The first has been pragmatic. How can I effectively navigate working from home when my very nearly perfect wife is doing aerobics in the middle of the living room and my three obstreperous boys are either swan diving from couch to couch or consuming Wi-Fi bandwidth as ravenously as Lucky Charms? The second question is loftier, a chin strummer. How is this crisis going to change us? Will it change the way we work? or perhaps the way we think about work? Will it change in meaningful ways or even in subtle ways the way we relate to and care for one another? Will it change the way we think about government? There's no one I would rather ask these questions than our very own Next Big Idea Club curator, Daniel Pink. Dan is an intrepid intellectual spelunker who's gone deep on subjects like human motivation, the increasing importance of creativity, counterintuitive strategies to change people's minds, and most recently, the scientific secrets of perfect timing. And I could use a dose of Dan's insight right about now. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Daniel Pink, it is great to have you on the Next Big Idea podcast. Rufus, it's always great to talk to you. Uh, I have to say that it's an extra treat to have you, Dan, as a guest, because as you know, you were instrumental to the existence of the Next Big Idea Club. Um, I remember coming down and pitching you on the idea at Pink World Headquarters, also known as the the renovated garage behind your house. (laughs) And ever since that day, you have been uh, supporting us as one of our four amazing curators, helping us identify the most interesting, potentially life-changing new books that so many listeners of this podcast have been enjoying. So so thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure. And I remember that conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm here, believe it or not, in that same office where we talked. And, and I'm, I can even, if I turn my head a bit, I can see the, the chair in which you were sitting during that momentous discussion a couple of years ago. Well, so they had to start off. How are you? How is the family? Have have they tired of your charming company? <laughs> uh, I'm, I am. For, fortunately, everybody's healthy. Uh, be, beyond that, I'm fine. Uh, as you know, Rufus, I have been working from home for 20 years. I've been social distancing for 50. So I'm in pretty good. <laughs> I'm in pretty good shape here. Yeah. Uh, my family is, is is okay. We have a higher occupancy rate in the pink house than usual because. One kid is home from college, uh, forced to spend her spring trimester in her childhood bedroom. And then our son, who's a high school junior, is unfortunately stuck doing, quote unquote, distance learning. 
Yeah. Well, I, I can tell you our, our oldest is 15. And I think the whole idea that he has unfettered access to his parents and no access whatsoever to his friends is the exact opposite of his ideal world. <laughs> uh, I, I agree. I agree. My son is looking for fetters. Believe me, he wishes there were some more fetters in that <laughs> yeah. access. My daughter's uh, key comment has been a, a remark about the amount of cheese that I eat during the week. <laughs> she did. She disapproves. Apparently. Well, I, I'm sure that the cheesemongers out there are celebrating your enthusiasm. The, uh, the timing of having you on this show, Dan, is, is, is great because this moment, this epidemic strikes me as being two things. I mean, at first, obviously, it's a global challenge. It's, it's a tragedy for so many people around the world, a, a massive public health crisis. Um, and, but it's also in each of our homes across the country – a kind of grand experiment, isn't it? In, in like in how we can navigate the course of a day successfully in a confined environment, uh, and I think it's possible that you might have more experience at this <laughs> than than many of the rest <laughs> of us. Um, so there are really two questions on my mind, and I think on so many people's sure. minds. You know, the, the first is how can we do it better? You know, we all have this challenge living in the quarantine of uh, trying to work from home, stay sane, productive, and happy. And then the second question maybe we can get to later in the conversation is what long-term changes to the way we work and live are likely to come out of this? So starting with how we can do it better, you've written six books, uh, and many of them touch on how we can be better at work. What advice do you have for our quarantined listeners? Yeah, I, I think it's a t it's a tough situation. And what I would put at the top of the list more than anything is for people to take care of each other. So your your yeah. loved ones, your your extended families. There is a greater than ever premium on just caring. I think that's our first order of business. I think it'll be interesting, Rufus, when we talk, you know, in, in a bit about some of the long term implications, whether we are going to see care as a value rise up the the ladder a little bit. So take care of each other. Um there is a premium on, on togetherness because we, we're not meant to be uh, disintermediated like this. We're not meant mm -hmm. to be all separated from each other. And so if you care for other people and have people who care for you, if you can foster some togetherness, I really think that's the first order of business. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, um, you know, there are some things that come out in some of the research I've done over the years that I think can give us some some clues and some tools to how to work better and smarter during mm -hmm. this bizarre moment. I imagine that some of what you've learned, you've learned from your extensive research. And then I, I also see you as being kind of both lab rat and scientists in, in having really meticulously like studied what has worked for you, right, in, in, in your two decades plus of, of working from home. Yeah, yeah. So, so I've, been do, I've been doing this for a while, and I think that some of the lessons are a bit counterintuitive, uh, and I can offer them up on the chance they're useful for people. So we have this idea that when you're working from home, it's all loosey-goosey. And, hmm. and I actually disagree with that. I'm a big, big, big believer in structure. Uh, I think you have to have some kind of, of structure. Now, we can make it a loose, tight structure, but mm -hmm. some sort of structure is, is really important. And I can, I can tell you, Rufus, on, on days when I'm writing, I will come out pretty much at the same time every day, usually you know, 8.30, 8.45. Mm -hmm. uh, not super early, but, but, not, but not super late. And on a writing day, what I will do is I will give myself a quota of words. I will say I have to hit a certain number of words. Now, that varies 
depending on what kind of project I'm doing, mm -hmm. where I am in a project and so forth. But it's not massive. I'm a, I'm a very slow writer. And so, mm -hmm. you know, you got, you got people out there who who are regularly cranking out 2000 words a day. That's mm -hmm. not me. So I give myself a quota of 500 words or 800 words or somewhere around there. You know, mm -hmm. 700 yeah. is usually about right. And what I will do is I will go to my office and I will not do anything else until I hit my number. There are days when I will hit my number at 1030. And that's I give myself a huge high five over that. Uh, there are other days when I don't hit it until 1230. There are other days, I mean, horrible days when I don't hit it till 130 or 230 or 3.30. But the most mm -hmm. important thing that I do is, is have that structure where I show up at, at more or less the same time. Yep. I give myself a quota, which is a, a fairly rigid way of doing things. And I try to avoid all distractions. And so the distractions that I avoid in particular when I, on, on writing days is that I do not bring my phone with me into the office. I actually don't open up my email during that time. I often will have a web browser open in, if I want to do you know, a quick spotty research. Mm -hmm. But that is pretty much it. I find that when I have that structure, again, a time to come in, an explicit goal, the environment configured to avoid distractions, mm -hmm. then I can do that deep work. Now, I, I noticed that in your structure, it, it seems like on most days you're knocking out that, that core bit of focused work in the morning. And I'm guessing, having read your most recent book, When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. I'm guessing it's not an accident that you are scheduling your most focused critical work for those first few hours of the day. It is not an accident at all. In this book, When, which you mentioned, uh, I look at this vast, 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 vast body of science on timing writ large. And one of the things that we know from this incredible body of material is that our brain power doesn't remain constant during the day. It changes so that the difference between the daily high point and the daily low point can be significant. And also what we do, the best time to do something depends on what we're doing. And there's a decent amount of evidence showing that individuals move through the day in, in three broad categories. There's a peak, there's a trough, there's a recovery. About 80% of us move through the day in that order. Mm -hmm. Peak early in the day, trough in the middle of the day, recovery later in the day. Um, now, about 20% of us, 25% of us are night owls. That is, we have an, what's called an evening chronotype. Mm -hmm. uh, we end up hitting our peak much later in the day, late afternoon, early evening, sometimes late at night. But the most important thing about the peak, most important attribute of, of the peak is that's when we are most vigilant. What does it mean to be vigilant? Vigilance means you're able to bat away distractions. You know, your book, When, has substantially impacted how I approach my day, um, which has really meaningfully improved my life. Uh, so thank you for that. Oh, great. For any skeptics out there, the data supporting these patterns that Dan's describing are overwhelming, right? I mean, th probably the most memorable data points in the book are around hospitals, right? And, mm. and sa you're pulling sample data from thousands of hospitals, yes. if I'm remembering correctly. Um, hospitals are four times more likely to make anesthesia errors at four in the afternoon than they are at nine in the morning. Um, and, and I, I quite literally, I was reading your book when, uh, I, I, I got to the data point around about colonoscopies. I put the book down, I picked up the phone and I called my doctor and rescheduled a colonoscopy that was for the afternoon. <laughs> literally. That is fantastic. Knowing that 
will keep me in the writing business for like two or three more weeks. No, I've I've been spreading the word. I'll tell you on a practical level how some of the insights and when have changed my daily experience. So I'm I'm much more tuned into how precious those morning hours are. No phone calls, no meetings. It's sacred. Those first several hours, I, I, I wall off, and then I give myself permission to enjoy the looseness of the afternoon, which you point out. Uh, can be better for creative tasks, brainstorming, free association. But one of the things that that I think is the most profound impact on me is that I'm actually much more forgiving of myself, right, for being somewhat less productive or or capable of of kind of intense focus in the second half of the day. And and I think that kind of self empathy hmm. is 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 really important. Right. I mean, it's honestly like expecting a little less to saying to yourself, like, if I get yeah. four really focused hours and then with the other hours, I, I, I just tick off a bunch of busy work that has to get done. I've you know, I can I can give myself a high five. I have to say four focused hours. That's a win, man. But, you know, this this brings me to, to, to my next question, which is not about kind of the micro timing or the daily timing we all wrestle with, which I do think is so important. But expanding here to, to the bigger picture timing in our lives, right? This is such a curious moment for so many of us. Everyone's life is on hold. I, I have a good friend who was about to start a new job, and now it's not clear that job is even going to happen, um, right? And I, I think it's a very interesting time to ask ourselves some of these big questions, which is, is my job the right job, right? I mean, it, yeah. is, is what I'm doing the right thing? Is there something we can do with this as a kind of liminal moment, a moment in between chapters of our lives hmm. to take inventory of our lives and see you know, what's working and what's not? I, I think so. I, I think so. You know, if we are, again, there's a, there's a bit of a divide here because uh, you know, if, if you can't pay your rent, if, you're, if you've just been thrown out of a job, you're just you're talking about the struggle for survival, but for for a lot of people, I do think that this moment is a chance to reflect on that. This mm-hmm. is an a, a, an amazing, extraordinary, unusual, terrifying moment in time. It's something that's going to leave an imprint on all of us, and at some point, we're going to look back at it and say, "What did you do during the pandemic of 2020?" And I think that's a very useful exercise. I myself don't want to look back on the pandemic of, of 2020 and say, mm-hmm. oh, I got really good at searching out old sports highlights and watching them. You know, I, <laughs> I doubled my intake of cheese. I want the answer to be, hey, I actually uh, took care of my family. Uh, I reconnected with people I, 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 I cared about. I checked into my friends a little bit more. I, to the extent I could, contributed to the to solving the problem by being very respectful about social distancing. And at a personal level, I actually got a lot of traction on the long-term project. I want to be able to look back and say and say that. So that's another question we can ask ourselves. Go forward in time, look back on this moment and ask mm-hmm. yourself, what did you do during the pandemic of 2020? Well, I think your daughter will be very happy to hear that you're not interested in doubling your intake of cheese, Dan. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's uh, very thoughtful. I think it's a great time for reflection who was it who, who coined this term homo prospectus? I think it might have been Martin Seligman. You know, this notion that we are a species that yeah. w- what we're designed to do is predict the future. And we're in this really kind of unprecedented moment for most for mo- most all of us, I think, where we're we're uniquely unable to project what's gonna happen. 
in the next right. two, three, four, five, six months. And that creates a lot of anxiety. Absolutely. But it also is like a pause button, right? And to me, it's very interesting to think, you know, what, what can we do with the pause? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Let's talk a little bit about how the world might change as a result of what's happening right now, and more specifically, how work might change, right? I mean, this is something that you've written about uh -huh. for, for years in different ways, uh, and I know you've thought a fair amount of, about. I mean, so many people are saying right now, oh, I can't wait for things to go back to normal. Um, but I think, it's, I think it's interesting to ask the question, do we really want things to go completely back to normal? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe there are some things that we're individually and collectively realizing uh, about what we're enjoying and not enjoying and and maybe what we're prioritizing that might shift some of our priorities and cause us to have a, a kind of new aspiration for what normalcy might look like coming out of this. So I think there are two things going on here. One is that this crisis is accelerating and deepening trends that were already underway. I think there's some interesting trends in the nature of work and what a job is. I think there's some interesting trends in how much we value security and how much we value resilience. But the second thing that's going on is that it's unmasking some bigger issues that I think were hidden in plain sight. Issues like inequality, issues like how much of our national treasure and time are we devoting to things like care? Um, are our budget priorities right? Have we built in the shock absorbers that people need to navigate a tumultuous society? And so, again, two things happening here. One is an acceleration deepening of one set of trends. Second, an unmasking of some pretty big societal issues that were there, but now we're seeing a little bit more starkly. So when we look at the trends that are currently underway, that are being deepened, as you say, I think, as you say, a great place to start is workplaces and this transition from workplaces to work platforms. Yeah, no, I'm a big believer. I, I, I've been I've been pushing this idea lately, big time. I could, it, it might not be might not be right, but I've been pushing it nonetheless. Which is this idea that what we think about we think about workplaces, and when we think about workplaces, we invariably think about a physical location where people go to do work. Mm -hmm. And what I think is actually what what is showing up what what we're showing right now is that workplaces are in some ways a subset of work platforms. That what yep. people need are the tools, the technology, the infrastructure, the connections to do good work. And I think we saw the first stirrings of this with some of these co-working spaces, mm -hmm. uh, as foolish as some of them were. Uh, but I, I actually think this trend from work places to work platforms mm -hmm. is, is actually going to deepen and accelerate. And what it might mean is that um, you don't want to be so much in the in the commercial uh, leasing business mm -hmm. in the near future. Right, right. But sure. I think we're going to start reassessing, um, you know, what what is the value of a place? What do places do for our work? And if you're running a company 
You want to think about what is my work platform as much as what is my workplace. And, and as I said earlier, I do think that the place becomes a subset of the platform itself. And we're not thinking in those kinds of terms, but we should be because when you look out there in the world of entrepreneurship, the most transformative companies out there, certainly in the in the business and consumer space, have been platform companies. Uber is a platform. Sure. Airbnb sure. is a platform. Yep. And so um, yep. if if I were a CEO, and thank God I'm not because it's in that it's in the large universe of things that I'm not good at. Um, I would I would think very very hard about what is my work platform. What are what are what is the infrastructure, the tools, the technology, the mm-hmm. teammates that my people need to do their very best work. And place is a component of that, but it's not the only thing. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that we tend to think that autonomy and accountability are antithetical concepts. Mm -hmm. Uh, That if you give people autonomy, if people have autonomy, they won't be accountable. And what we really know, especially among high performers, especially among the people you want to have on your team, is that that autonomy is the pathway to accountability, that it's how people are are accountable. Um, When you don't have autonomy, what you have is you have, you don't have accountability as much as you have compliance. So, okay, boss, here I am. Look at me. My butt is in the seat. Look at me. My suit jacket is is over the back of my chair, which suggests that I'm that I'm still around. <laughs> yeah. Look at me. I'm in this meeting, nodding happily to everything that you have to say. Um, so that is that's compliant yeah. behavior, but it's right. it's not productive behavior. Let's talk for a second about about purpose, right? Which is, and I think that's what you were getting at in in, in saying earlier when we look back and ask ourselves what we did during this time. You know, there's this question of of of, of the purposefulness of that which we do. Um, and, and I've heard you talk about big P purpose and small P purpose, right? And, and it, it strikes me that maybe one of the unintended positive consequences of this moment is that we, we're gaining this appreciation for the importance of, of each and every job, right? Like the mailman is mm-hmm, a, is a mm-hmm. hero. Like I'm all, but yeah. a, I'm all but applauding when the mailman, you know, valiantly crosses my driveway with some mm-hmm. mail and it's like, I want to give him mm-hmm. a hug. That would not be appropriate with distancing, <laughs> but, but it, it's, it's, you know, I think that, I'm not sure that'd be appropriate in a world free of distancing either, <laughs> think, Rufus, but I'll I leave it. Right. I'll leave it to you and your conscience to decide that. Yeah. I, I, I have that problem in general. I'm a, I'm a hugger, but do, do you think that might be happening? I mean, or, or that, that our appreciation of, of small p purpose, right? That each and every contribution matters and, and maybe there's at least a short-term and hopefully medium-term or longer shift in values in that direction. Well, okay. So on the first part, yes, I think right now we are absolutely appreciating that. Um, I think that when you go to uh, any, anybody, if you go to a grocery store or a gas station or a drugstore, any place that's open, one should thank the people who are working there. I'm not convinced that that will remain something that is enduring. Sure. Uh, but, but and to some extent that's, that's within our control. And so if we can extend that kind of appreciation for people who are making a contribution into the future, that I think that's great. I, I think I, and as you say, I, I, my view is that it becomes a big part about management and, and leadership purpose to me has always been, uh, two things, not one thing you have, what I call, as you mentioned, Rufus, uh, small P purpose, that's is, am I making a contribution? Mm-hmm. And then you have capital P purpose, which is, am I making a difference? If you have a company that, that is, um, uh, you know, working to uh, solve the climate crisis. Then, then you have big P purpose. But let's say you're at a ball bearing company. Uh, it's I'm not sure that you can make a big transcendent capital P purpose on changing the world 
claim at a ball bearing company. And yet the world still needs ball bearings. And so if you're working at a ball bearing company, then am I making a contribution matters a lot. Did I help my teammate get this thing done? Did I do a small redesign of our machines that allow us to do this more effectively? Um, if I'm a boss, you know, I might not be supplying jobs that allow people to rapidly self-actualize, but I can provide jobs that uh, offer a decent standard of living, small p purpose. And, and we need both of those. Um, capital P purpose isn't as much at our fingertips anymore. I feel that way myself, Rufus. It's not like I'm going to you know, sit in my kitchen and concoct a vaccine. Uh, I'm not a physician. I'm not a nurse. I'm not a first responder. But there are ways for me and, and people like me to make a small contribution. Mm-hmm. Simply thanking mm-hmm. someone at a grocery store who's working yep. at a grocery store is a small contribution. My wife and I have three parents in their 80s. Checking in on them regularly is making a small contribution. Uh, making sure my kids are all right and are understanding what's going on is a small contribution. Reconnecting with my friends, who mm-hmm. some of whom I haven't talked to for you know for a while, and making sure they're okay is a small contribution. And then tying this back to what we were talking about before, when we move ourselves forward in time and look back on this moment, you can say, yeah, you know what? I did. Uh, you know, I took care of my family. Mm-hmm. I took care of myself. I checked in on my friends. I didn't solve this crisis. I didn't heal the sick, but I did my small part at this trying moment. No, absolutely. You know, there's all this research now showing that um, connecting with friends and colleagues and family is as important to your health as exercise, as eating well. So connecting with the elderly relative is critical for their health and for our own. It's, it's really just this kind of core, core human need. And hopefully that's, that's something we all do more of right now and, and, continue, to, and continue to keep well, doing Well, that's, that's, that's the interesting thing about whether, again, this is the unmasking that I'm talking about, is whether what this crisis does is, we talked a little bit about how it accelerates and deepens some of these trends that are already underway, particularly in the nature of, you know, from workplaces to work platforms to, mm-hmm. to different notions of what a job is, but also it has this unmasking function where we can look at what's going on here and say, my gosh, we were actually, uh, uh, the status quo was actually bereft of the kind of human connection that we need. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't mm-hmm. put a high enough premium on care. We had uh, an incredible problem with loneliness that we were not acknowledging to go even into more sort of national priorities. One of the things that I've been thinking about is that, you know, how much are we spending on, in some ways, backward looking notions of defense and security? You know, two of the three things that really brought down this country in the last 20 years, 9-11 and this virus. 9-11 was eight guys and some box cutters. And the pandemic was a virus that is, you know, whatever it is, like, you know, two microns wide, you can't even see it. And yet we had this incredible amount of spending, both in terms of time, brain power, public dollars, devoted to defending ourselves when we might have been defending ourselves against the wrong thing. So again, you know, I'm hoping that this is a, that this pandemic is a great unmasking, where we can see more clearly some of the inequality. We can see some of the deficits in care. We can see this problem we had in our society with loneliness. We can see that we were actually, when it comes to actually national security, national defense, we were actually monumentally spending on the wrong things. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, 
and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. We think Dan Pink's book, When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, is an indispensable guide to getting the most out of your hours, days, and years. So much so that we've even worked with Dan to make an e-course based on the book for the next big idea club. Here's a taste. Naps are Zambonis for our brain. They smooth out all of the nicks and cuts in our mental ice that a day has left. So here's how to take a perfect nap. Number one, before I take that nap, this is going to sound weird, I have a cup of coffee. Stick with me on this. Then I close my eyes. I can usually fall asleep. To hear the rest of Dan's nap strategy, why not join the Next Big Idea Club, the community of readers and writers that powers this podcast? If you join now, we'll send you a hard copy of Dan's book, as well as the e-course and much more. So whether you like to read, watch videos, or listen to audio, you'll have all the ideas from the most groundbreaking nonfiction right at your fingertips. Just go to nextbigideaclub.com slash when. I think there's a kind of libertarian... Uh, American frontier spirit fantasy that we don't need each other. We don't need government. Um, and I say that without judgment, right? I mean, we, I think we all have a little bit of that libertarian spirit in us. Sure. Right. It's in moments like this that we realize, you know, we really do need a, a highly functioning government. And so ho hopefully we, we, um, uh, th that's that's something that becomes more apparent to people. I, I also think getting back to this trend towards more and more freelancers, the gig economy, what you, as you pointed out, you, you wrote about this in 2002 in Free Agent Nation. This has been a trend that's been underway for a long, long time. And it strikes me that what's exciting about that is that, you know, people who work for themselves uh, tend to be happier. They all, they, they, I read somewhere, they say you have to pay me twice as much money to work for somebody else. It makes perfect sense to me. It's aligned with the autonomy piece. But in order for that to work on a larger scale, we do need to have uh, an infrastructure that provides people with health care. Um, oh, you know, God, right? yes. Uh, uh, not to mention, perhaps, uh, I mean, recently, ever, ever since talking with Andrew Yang on this on this podcast, that makes more and more sense to me. I mean, so here we are, you know, 20 years since since you first started writing about, about the rise of the gig economy, the move towards freelancers. Maybe this accelerates, maybe this moment helps accelerate that trend, but it does feel like some changes, some fundamental changes need to be put in place to, to prepare our society for that. Absolutely right. And I think that we're going to begin reckoning with this even more on a number of different dimensions. There's the business strategy, the kind of like MBA leadership side of this, which is, I think, interesting and important. And then there's also the public policy side of it. On the first side of it, this, the, the business structure, I don't want to 
uh, sound too much like a business school professor, but I'm going to analogize from a, a theory uh, from Ted Levitt at, at Harvard Business School 25 years ago, 30 years ago, where he talked about people buy things. They don't buy things. They buy jobs to be done. So when you buy a drill, you don't want a drill. You want a hole in the wall. So product services are jobs to be done. I, I think that what's what's happening now is we're moving toward like especially, and I think it's being exposed now, is a job, okay? Mm -hmm. So you have a job as an accountant, but within that job as an accountant are dozens of jobs to be done. And we and we should be scrutinizing those because a lot of those jobs to be done, people might not need to do them. They might be a total waste. Mm -hmm. um, yep. We need to talk about which need to be done collaboratively and which need to be done solo. What has to be done synchronously and what can be done asynchronously? Yep. To my mind, synchronous work activities is overvalued asynchronous work activities is undervalued. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have this kind of sorting where, where jobs in many ways, the, the capital J job is being in some ways unbundled. And what we're realizing is that in, in a particular job, project manager, accountant, whatever, is actually a collection of smaller jobs to be done. And we can figure out which of those we need and which of those, which of those we don't. Now, there is, and, and I think you made a very, very good point here too, and, and I tried to make this point 100 years ago in Free Agent Nation, is that the biggest, I thought the biggest change of this move toward Free Agent Nation wasn't going to be among people who were quote unquote independent workers. It was going to be in corporate America. Hmm. And that what somebody who was working for herself and somebody who was working for a company looked like that border was going to get murkier and murkier and murkier and murkier. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's happening, and this actually shifts us into that public policy mm -hmm. uh, realm that we were talking about, is this. There has been a massive shift of risk away from organizations onto individuals. Yep, exactly and you, right. You, I mean, massive. Mm -hmm. And you see this, to me, most tellingly in retirement savings, as mundane as that might be, as room emptying a topic as that might be. My father had a what's called a defined benefit pension. So when he retired, once he retired, he got a check every month from his former organization. He worked for a nonprofit, his former nonprofit. He, my father passed away nine years ago. My mother still gets those checks, okay? Mm -hmm. um, his kids do not have defined benefit pensions. They have 401ks where the risk of retirement savings has, has shifted from the organization to the individual. So if they want to save for quote unquote retirement, whatever that is, the onus is on them. If you look at health insurance, we had employer provided health insurance where people you know, had relatively small premiums, not much co-pays. Now, if they even have employer provided health insurance, they're paying a lot more. More of the risk has shifted to them. Education and training. Those budgets have been slashed. People have to self-educate. The risk has been shifted to them. So over and over and over again, what we have is we have this massive shift of risk from organizations to individuals. For a long time in this country, post-World War II until the 1970s, corporations, companies, employers played a quasi-government role, but no longer. Uh, and so we have this shift of risk. Now, the shift of risk is okay if you have skills to survive in the labor market. It stinks if you don't. And so what we need, back to that public policy question, mm -hmm. is we need another entity, our society, to provide those kinds of shock absorbers. And what you have now is you have people who are, who are driving through their professional lives without any shock absorbers. So they hit something like this, yep. and the car goes spinning out of control. 
So what we need to look at is how can we provide these shock absorbers for people? How can we build in greater resilience into our systems? And if you look at what's happening right now, you see these mile-long lines for food banks in middle-class places like San Antonio, Texas. You see 20 million unemployment claims in the space of four weeks. That is a society without shock absorbers. That is a society that isn't resilient. And there's a moral problem with that, of course. Mm -hmm. But, and here's a dirty little secret, there's an economic problem with that. Sure. Because that kind of structure isn't sustainable economically. It's not a healthy economy when you have it like that. So anyway, for so that's my... That's my that's yeah, my rant for yeah. the day. Thank you for indulging me. <laughs> well, and and I think I I think what's nice about that uh, about this moment is that it this doesn't necessarily need to be a, an issue that falls along partisan lines, right? I mean, I think that we all know that people need help. I think everyone, irrespective of politics, likes autonomy, wants a sense of purpose in their work, likes the idea of working independently very often, and, and I think to be able to see collectively that the best path forward to that is to make sure that everybody has access to an adequate kind of base, you know, health coverage and and, and minimum resources to to navigate this world. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, this has been great, Dan. And as a final question, Dan, I like to ask people in this series, what gives you hope right now? Uh, what gives me hope right now are, are, are a few things. Um, two things in, in this particular moment, two things. Number one is that we have these people, as we were talking about earlier, who are on the front lines making a contribution. And then these people, these truly, truly heroic people who are making a difference, who are staffing these hospitals, who are trying to come up with a cure. The other thing that gives me hope, which I don't think we've talked about enough, is this. If I had said to you three months ago, you know what, Rufus, here's what's going to happen. We're going to tell people that they have to stay inside, that they have to shut down their small business. They have to stay inside. We're going to close down schools and we're going to do this because there's a virus and it's going to keep everybody safe. And vast majorities of people around the world are going to say, OK, I'm willing to do my part. I'll stay mm -hmm. home. I don't think you would have believed me. Yep. I don't think you would have believed me. When we look at the people who are not compliant, um, they are a tiny, tiny minority of people. The rest of the people are actually saying, you know what, I'm going to do something. I, I am going to, you know, no one is, we don't have police in the street enforcing these, these stay at home things. Mm -hmm. We don't have police in the military in the street enforcing social distancing. Mm -hmm. People are doing this because it's the right thing to do for themselves and their community. And if we look at that, that should give us a lot of hope. It's a beautiful thing to see. Well, thank you, Daniel Pink, for taking a break from your cheese consumption and your book writing and your connecting with your extended family to talk with us today. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Rufus. I really enjoyed it. Want to get your own copy of Dan Pink's When? The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing? Join the Next Big Idea Club today and we'll send you one for free. Talk about good timing. Of course, you'll also get access to all the best new nonfiction ideas as selected by Dan and fellow curators Susan Cain, Malcolm Gladwell, and Adam Grant. Ideas with the potential to change the way you work, live, and understand the world. Just go to nextbigideaclub.com slash when 
That's nextbigideaclub.com slash when. You've been listening to a special coronavirus edition of the Next Big Idea podcast. Next week, I'll be speaking with Kickstarter co-founder Yancey Strickler about how this current crisis could be an opportunity to start building a more generous world. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. Our sound design is by Jake Gorski. Caleb Bissinger is our associate producer. Our series producer is Michael Kovnat. Jonathan Miller is our senior producer. Our executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering.